Mosul, who bombed civilians, IS fighters or coalition aircraft? Brexit, why is the Prime Minister threatening to pull terrorist intelligence? Cyber warfare, the Royal Navy fights back against the hackers. And let's hear it for Britain's tiny military museums. The most senior British military figure in Iraq has admitted it's an extremely challenging environment. Major General Rupert Jones was speaking as investigations continue into claims that more than 130 civilians were killed in a single airstrike two weeks ago. He says Islamic State militants could have used them as a human shield during the battle for Mosul. The enemy are gathering uh, civilians together, they're putting them in houses and, and they are then fighting from those houses. Uh, in many instances we think they're they're rig- with, with booby traps. It is it's an indication of desperation. The fighters in, in uh, Mosul, they're isolated, they're completely cut off. They recognise that their defeat is inevitable. Well, a little earlier I spoke to Michael Evans from The Times. I asked him if he agreed with the general that the IS fighters are getting desperate. This is the thing they've been doing uh, all the time. I, I, I'm not sure it's a sign of desperation on their part. It's certainly true that some of their leaders have, uh, have, have left Mosul. But basically one of their main tactics has been to use citizens as human shields in order to make uh, the US-led coalition airstrikes more complicated. So I think that's a, a tactic they've used before. The only thing that makes it worse now is that in West Mosul, the buildings and roads are all so packed together and so densely populated that it makes the airstrikes even more difficult. And during his election campaign, uh, Donald Trump had talked about carpet bombing ISIS. And there is the suggestion that the US has loosened the rules of engagement, denied by a senior commander. Do do you think it is possible, though? Well, uh, obviously, carpet bombing is is an unfortunate term to use because clearly that's not what the US-led coalition are doing. And the rules of engagement have not been changed, but there has been a degree of flexibility Uh, which has uh, helped for local commanders, the local U.S. commanders, for them to call in airstrikes off their own bat. In other words, they make their own decisions. So the Iraqi forces say, we need airstrikes immediately on X, Y, and Z. And instead of having to sort of go right up the chain of command, the local commanders are able to say, in in consultation with their uh, their Iraqi colleagues, okay, go for it. Uh, So there is a degree of flexibility, which means that the whole process has been speeded up. Yes. I mean, the RAF, in terms of the specific incident um, where around 130 civilians may well have been killed in an airstrike, and the MOD has this week said that they didn't have any evidence that the RAF were involved in that. How has this sort of change in the risk to civilians, how has that impacted upon the way our coalition is working and their responsibilities? Um, you know, the, the, the sort of basic tenet here is always try and avoid civilian casualties. I mean, first of all, it's, a, uh, you know, it, it's the most important thing to do is to avoid casualties. But in West Mosul, as I said earlier, they're all so packed together and all being held, many of them being held as human shields. So it, it does make it incredibly difficult. And the risk of greater civilian casualties is much higher. The U.S. commanders know this. The Iraqi commanders know this. But the fact is that when you drop bombs from a considerable height, even if they are precision-guided bombs and going on a target that has been 
uh, laser marked, as it were, by people on the ground, it still does not guarantee that that building is, is uh, free of civilians. And I think that's what's been going on recently. When you can't get those guarantees, when ISIS may have perhaps a vehicle stuffed with bombs nearby, which might have unintended consequences, how does the coalition get the balance right? How does it get the proportionality right in targeting ISIS without causing catastrophic, catastrophic lo- loss of civilian life and perhaps breaking international Conventions. I think it is a huge challenge. It's always been a challenge to avoid civilian casualties. It's a much greater challenge now because of what ISIS are doing. Uh, it, it's a problem for them all. However, uh, the US-led coalition and the Iraqi forces on the ground who are mounting the offensives do not want to stop the momentum because if you stop the momentum, it gives ISIS a break and it helps them to recuperate. So it's a very great sort of challenge. One, you don't want to kill civilians, but two, you want to get on with the job and try and finish off liberating Mosul. And I think there's a, there is a great danger that more, more civilians will be killed, but this is something which the US forces certainly are highly aware of and desperately trying to avoid. That was Michael Evans from The Times, or Christopher Lee, BFBS Defence Analyst, is with me as usual. Hello, Christopher. Tell me a little bit more about the intelligent picture which informs airstrikes in places like Mosul's. Whose is it and how does it work exactly? First, get an idea where the targets are. If you look, it's in on the west side of Mosul. It's in the old city. If you look at that, that area, which is only in our terms of uh, maybe four blocks, around the old Al-Nuri Mosque. That's where people gather. These are the old homes, the strong homes, etc. Those are the targets. You've then got an idea that still in Mosul, in West Mosul, there's some like 2,000 IS fighters still. So that builds up the target picture. We've still got to get 2,000 either fled out of here or get them ourselves, all in that single area. Then look what the coalition air forces are made up from. Now, the Americans have got B-52 bombers. Therefore, people start talking about carpet bombing because they're, they're not accurate. They're not like the, the, the F-14s or whatever. They're also in, in there. Then look at also the A-10 Warthogs that the Americans have put in there. They, these are tank busters. These are broad-winged aircraft that go in low. That, that, that was their original uh, uh, ideal. Then you've got the system that if you've got special forces who are being pushed through to try and get at IS, those guys get to a point, identify a building, and say, I need close air support here because we're going to move forward up to a certain point and then we want you to take out that building, whether it's a garage or, 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 or whatever. That is the size of the problem. And the only way you can handle it is that you give the, the, the force identifier, you give the target identifier, you give these guys, and not the overall commander even, just the regional, the, the guy who's doing the tactical command, you give them the authority to call down an airstrike. And if there'll you, be the problem. If you have a situation, though, where an airstrike is called down and unwittingly it sets off a car bomb nearby, which kills more people, more civilians than it was that the original airstrike was supposed to, whose fault is that? Um, well, then you, if you get into the, if you start getting into the blame game, in a tactical battle, then you're on the wrong side. You're on the wrong track altogether. What you have to understand is that you have certain limitations beyond which you cannot go. 
so you say, right, do we know if there are any civilians in there? If not, we have to pull off. We actually pull off on the way in, actually, to make the strike. So where does the original intelligence come coming from? But when you say, well, hang on, there's a truck there, it may be a car bomb. And a car bomb, yes, will blow a hole much bigger than anything that came out of a it came out of Hornet can actually do. Uh, and then that's the difficulty of command like that. Otherwise, you actually say, why are we using aircraft? We're using aircraft actually to soften up in order that special forces and the Iraqi soldiers themselves, because eventually this is a command which is for, for the Iraqis, it's not for the Americans. Now, the government has been accused of trying to blackmail the EU, warning the failure to secure a Brexit deal could put security cooperation under threat. Theresa May's Article 50 letter was full of compliments for the EU, but also a warning. Here's former Cabinet Minister and leading Brexiteer Ian Duncan Smith. A little reminder to the European Union that actually there is a lot in this for them, as much as there is for us, if we strike a reasonable agreement. The reality is that the UK actually is needed in a whole lot of areas, cooperation on security, intelligence and policing. Well, let's talk to BBC World Service political correspondent Rob Watson. Uh, Rob, good to speak to you today. Good to speak um, to you. This perceived threat, is it all about pulling out of cooperation with Europol? Well, it's not really said. I mean, if you, if you look at the sentence, it's, it's pretty short. It says, in security terms, a failure to reach agreement would mean our cooperation in the fight against crime and terrorism would be weakened. But it, it doesn't say any more than that. And you were right to say, if you put this in the context of the rest of the letter, I think there are appeals for a, a deep and special relationship, a partnership between the UK and the EU. So I think one has to be a little bit careful. So perhaps instead we should just say, well, what is the security cooperation between Britain and Europe? Well, it's sort of three different things. There's the country-to-country -country bilateral intelligence sharing, which I just think it's inconceivable that MI5 would stop sharing stuff with the French or whoever. Then there's all the, the sort of Europol stuff, the European arrest warrants, the sort of Schengen-y type stuff. And again, Britain seems to benefit more from that than any other European partner. And then there's the other stuff, the... Uh, the common security and defence policy. So that's the um, that's the kind of things where Britain is engaged in operations with other Europeans uh, on I don't know patrolling the high seas off Greece, that kind of thing. But exactly what the threat is uh, wasn't spelled out. In which case, then trade deals shouldn't be mixed up with security in this way. Well, I mean, certainly that's the case being made by plenty on the Remain side, that if, if it was in any way intended as a threat, it was absolutely hopelessly clumsy because it's not credible. You can't really imagine Britain uh, doing anything about it, so it was a bit silly if it was meant. And certainly that was the view taken in Europe. But, I mean, of course, that, that the government has been rowing back fairly rapidly, saying, look, we weren't making a threat as such, we're just sort of pointing stuff out. Christopher Lee, what, what's your take on all of this? Well, start, start, start and think Europol. Um, and this becomes extraordinarily important because it, it's, it's a question of the exchange of information and it's the type of information. And it, could, and it involves crime as well. Now, crime is not terrorism, etc., but the sources are quite often the same. Then look what was happening in producing this sort of statement that uh, the Prime Minister came out with. And start looking around for Amber Rudd who is squatting in the Home Office, uh, Mrs. Uh, May's old, old, old bin. And they've been talking. Uh, last time it was 10 days 
about what is the security application that you put in and show that there is a connection with all sorts of other agencies. And the other agencies can be trade, for example, but trade and security go together. There is a, there, there is a protocol, for example, in the trade and security, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but an agreement or, or, or whatever, that they are connected. And she sees that you can actually start to withhold information and she says this, this is Amber Rudd she says this because she said that is actually in print in the arrangements so it's not just a sort of a, a willy nilly sort of uh, threat because we won't do it at all now the other side of this is what's coming mm. over from, from Washington and the fact that Washington is equally concerned about the transfer of information from, from the British especially some of it might be coming from America from the British to uh, Europol anyway. Now that has been gradually threatened by Washington is mm. watch what you do when you're not in, in on first name terms with these people. So Rob Watson, not, not a willy nilly threat. Well, you know, Christopher is right about these things and I was just looking at it, I've got in front of me, I mean, I'm not, it's not normally everyday reading it, it's from the government, uh, HMG government, it's a paper on the UK's cooperation with the EU on justice and home affairs and it was written fairly recently. And I was looking at the Europol segment and it says the UK uses Europol more than any, almost any other country. Uh, UK law enforcement's use of Europol has increased over time and that it exchanged 26% more messages on Siena, that's uh, the Secure Information Exchange Network, in 2015 than in 2014. In other words, our use of it has been going up all the time. And if you look at something like the European arrest warrant, 7,000 criminals sent overseas since 2004 and 1,000 extradited back in, mm. if you see what I mean. You see, a lot of, a lot of this exchange started in Paris, started in Brussels, uh, and it accelerated it. And it was the fact that we had information that the French did not have. And that's the sort of thing that, say, other people would remind the Prime Minister and uh, Mrs Rudd, that's got to continue because it's got nothing mm. to do with the politics of Europe. OK, so plus un change. Rob Watson, thank you very much for your time today. Well, nice to be with you. Still to come, Britain's military history tucked up in 139 mini-museums. Now, Exercise Joint Warrior is underway in Scotland. Thousands are taking part in the NATO exercise. Countries involved include Denmark, Belgium, Estonia, France, Germany, the Netherlands, Norway, Spain, Sweden, the UK and the US. Well, about 430 of the thousands of personnel involved are coordinating the exercise from the Clyde Naval Base's Maritime Operations Centre. Christopher, it's a big one, isn't it? Info Warrior 17, it's called. I mean, the... Uh, the joint warrior happens twice a year and it does bring in people it's the, it's the probably the biggest continuous exercise in the whole of Europe and it is the Royal Navy that is so, saying we have a totally different sort of cyber warfare to conduct and largely that is because it's on the move all the time and it's in ships and so give a, a very very simple e example uh, you get an order a tactical order mm. to your ship how do you know the origin of that order? Well, you know because it comes through a, a stream which normally nobody else gets through and it's rather like, you know, having your own telephone number. But what if somebody can get into it? What if somebody can hold it back? What if somebody can actually change it? And this is just a, a tiny example of the measures that the, all navies now have to exercise mm. because they have to exercise 
under threat of being destroyed. Well, as you said, uh, Information Warrior 17 involves that artificial intelligence and tests the protection of warships and submarines against cyber attacks. So is the military and the wider defence industry doing enough to combat the threat? Well, let's talk to Ian Goslin, who is Managing Director of Airbus Cyber Security in the UK. Ian Goslin, good to speak to you today. Uh, can you explain the everyday threats faced by the defence industry from cyber attacks? Yeah, I think um, the threats for defence industry are very similar to the threats that are faced by all industries uh, or across the, the UK and across the world. Um, you know, there, there are three main elements in terms of uh, attackers. Uh, there are you know, the amateur hackers and hacktivists you know, who are, as it says by its name, you know, they, they often do it for political reasons, but sometimes just to prove that they can. There are cyber criminals. Um, and they're out there and they're out for one thing only and that is to, to take money uh, illegally um, and sometimes there are state-sponsored actors uh, which have the backing of governments and take their direction from political masters. Um, back to perhaps the cyber criminals, um, when I said they're just after money, they're also there as uh, guns for hire. So you can see how they can be dragged into the, uh, the state actor space as well. And then in terms of um, what we get attacked by, um, you know, the, the, the ones that are most obvious are you know, distributed denial of service, where basically they bombard your um, input to a point that you can take no information or send any information. You get the um, less likely but probably more dangerous zero-day exploits, where new viruses and Trojans are launched on, as it says, a zero day, so you've never seen them before, so protecting against them can be very challenging. And then perhaps the, the most dangerous of all is the um, advanced persistent threat, where something is placed into your system and actually sits and waits for a trigger, uh, and at which point uh, it'll do some damage to your capability. So like like what, the... for example? Can you give me... A... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so um, everything from actually trying to take control of your um, control systems, such as the uh, Stuxnet, uh, things like um, the black energy in 2015 where Ukraine power grid was shut down, uh, and perhaps to um, a, a smaller, but perhaps uh, also an, a major part, is actually um, exfiltrating information that may be really important to industries, such as your IPR. Um, one that perhaps is um, something we haven't seen so much of, but perhaps is of more interest to defense, is actually a, an advanced persistent threat where rather than exfiltrate stuff, it just deletes information or corrupts information. Uh, and because of that, what you get is you get a situation where your confidence in your information is undermined and because of that, particularly in a military context, your confidence in decision-making based on information is also undermined. The, the Ministry of Defence talks a lot about being on the case with this sort of thing. Do you think they are? Uh, well, they've uh, employed Airbus to run their security operations centre, so they must have done something right. <laughs> um, so uh, I, think, um, I think, yes, very much so. They're very aware of the threat. And they're very aware that they have to uh, continuously uh, fight to put up the most um, 
severe barriers to actually these types of attacks, but yet recognising that these attacks sometimes get through. Of course, money is being put into cybersecurity, $1.9 billion over five years. You've got to have the expertise, haven't you? Um, what do you think about the generation that's coming through on this? I think the, the generation that's coming through, um, quite often they're being uh, seduced by the uh, idea of being a cyber warrior, and that's a really positive thing, uh, because I think we will have many more people in the next generation that have the skills, and perhaps even more importantly, the awareness of cyber to actually ensure that the UK is uh, protected. All right. Ian Gosling, Managing Director of Airbus Cybersecurity in the UK. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Christopher, let's talk briefly about some of the other military stories making the news this week. And of course, Marine A, Alexander Blackman, who killed a Taliban fighter already wounded in front of his patrol, is about to be released after his sentence was changed at the appeal court to manslaughter. Seven years and he'll be out perhaps within weeks. Uh, Christopher, treated as a, as a British legal decision, is there a wider implication? The wider implication is discussed at the moment and that is where did this where did this event, as it's called, take place within the Geneva Convention on the Protection of Prisoners of War? Uh, and what about his other members of his patrol? Did they do enough to prevent uh, the killing of this Taliban? Uh, this is quite a different thing from the judicial system through which he's just gone. But it doesn't mean to say that it stopped and people have examined this in the, in, in the uh, Geneva Convention. The National Army Museum in Chelsea opens its doors to the public today after a £23 million redevelopment. The museum has 2,500 objects shown off in five galleries, but if you can't get to London to see it, why not visit one of the 139 smaller regimental museums scattered across the UK instead? Well, Mark Smith is an expert in arms and militaria on the BBC's Antiques Roadshow, and he joins us now. Hello, Mark. Um, you were once a curator of a smaller military museum Museum. Tell us a little bit, a, a bit about the little guys. Yeah, hello there. Good afternoon to you. Yes, um, for for 14 years I was the uh, curator of the Royal Artillery Museum in Woolwich uh, when it was at its London base um, down in the uh, the old sort of Royal Arsenal buildings. Um, our our museum was was a large regimental museum, obviously because of the size of the kit that we had, but also because of the size of the regiment. Um, you know that had gone before it so we told the story of an awful awful lot of people um, you know over three million really who had served in the regiment over the 300 years why are regimental museums so important I think they keep the memory of those people who have served in the public eye they keep the army as a presence if, if they are a local sort of regimental museum they keep that in the sort of the local domain and they they act as a focal point for what we used to call the retired regiment those old soldiers who want to take grandchildren back um, and they act as a focus point for for recruiting really have you seen much of the new national army museum know much about it um i know a little bit about it because obviously i i still know people in the museum world who i who i chat to um, and I'm sure when I eventually get to see it, it's going to be quite spectacular. If you, if you could recommend one thing to go and see at a military museum, what would it be exactly? Well, for me, it's always got to be the medals. Um, 
Why, why, why the, I know you, it's your love, but... Huge, but... huge passion. Um, I, for, for why? Um, not, not because of the medals per se themselves, because medals are all the same. Um, you know, if you, if you see 50 medals from the First World War, the actual medal itself is always the same. But the fascinating thing for me is that is the bit of the museum, in all museums, where you tell the story of the people. Because whilst you've got all these hats and aeroplanes and, and tanks and etc., they are just objects. Um, the medals belong to someone who actually went off to fight with those things. And through that object, like a little time machine, you can take your visitor back to a moment on a battlefield and tell that story, not only of the regiment, of that piece of equipment, but also of one person's involvement in that action. Christopher, what's your favourite regimental museum? Well, it just so happens to be the Black Watch. Um, and um, you're quite right about the medals. My grandfather's 42nd foot, uh, his medals are in there. Um, there's also a broken sword. I'm never sure that was being because he was cashiered or something. <laughs> but there is this sense, of, I think, of great foreboding. Money hard to get and the small museums which are supported by the regiments and also by you know friends of the museum uh, have to find more money what bothers me and exactly like your lot down at down at the arsenal down at woolwich of the gunners what happens when it all goes into storage and it's not so much you can't get at it is that somebody asks well one day and saying what are we going to do with this lot and the whole history 300 years since naseby or whatever will have disappeared. I think that is one of the problems that, that all of these small museums are facing. I, I, I call the Museum of, the, of Artillery. I, I no longer have anything to do with that, but you know, the collection was enormous, sort of a three, three million odd items. But the smaller museums uh, face the same problem as the Royal Artillery Museum in, in that there is, there is only a finite amount of money. And the way in which the army looks upon funding its museums it it seems to believe that these small museums should be able to generate enormous sums of money to keep themselves going mm. there's only a very small audience really for people who want to come and see this on a regular basis so really what we tried to do was to was to to refresh what we had all of the time that we were there so if you came to us on the first week of the summer holidays as a family uh, you would do something. You would dress up as a Roman. You would learn something about Roman soldiers or whatever it might be. If you came on the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth week, all the way through the summer, that offering changed mm. every, every week so that the same family could come in week one and come back again in week four, visit the museum again, but do something completely different. And I think the, the reliance on making all of our museums um, corporate entertainment type is not necessarily the right way to go for museums. Uh, Mark, you were just talking a little bit earlier about, about the importance of medals and the stories they tell. I was wondering if you've got a, a favourite medal story. Oh, uh, yes. Well, from, uh, from the Royal Artillery Museum, there was a man called um, John Rains. He was a sergeant from uh, the, the Royal Regiment in 1915. He fought at the Battle of Luz. Um, he saw his friend wounded during a gas attack. Um, went over to help him, was wounded himself, carried his friend in, 
Um, and then his friend was wounded again, but in such a way that it destroyed his gas helmet. If you remember, they looked like um, pillowcases over your head. And bless him, John Raines only had one other gas mask, which was the one he was wearing. So he took off his own gas mask in the gas, put it over his friend, and then carried him out to the dressing station. Even though now he was wounded and gassed himself, he went back and he kept his gun in action until, until sort of the battle was over. Wow. Can, can I just give you a quick one? Uh, you'll, you'll have known one of my old great-uncles, George Lee, who was a gunner. Yep. George Lee said, the museum here, talking of Woolwich, yep. is the identity of the nation. And I think that sort of sums up what they're about. People, you take your grandsons or your children or yourself, and you stand in front of a bit of a glass and behind it there's a tunic. Uh, there may even be a bit of blood on it, and you know what the identity of your, your nation is. Mm. Mark Smith, uh, what's your next museum visit going to be? Mine, actually, probably will be the National Army Museum because um, it's somewhere that I've always gone to, uh, you know, over the years in the past, and it has been closed for a while now, and uh, I still have some friends down there, so I think um, as soon as I can get myself up there, I'll, um, I'll go and see what they've done. All right, Mark Smith, good to speak to you. I look forward to talking to you once you've been there. Thank you very much for your time today. So um, that's about all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. You can listen to us a podcast. You can always uh, tune in at the same time next week. But for now, from us, from SITREP, thank you very much. Uh, Don't forget, you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to the show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. So thanks for listening. From me, Kate Chabot, bye-bye for now. And we'll speak to you same time next week. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.